welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Hello, good morning. May I add my welcome to you this morning? My name's Stephen, and I get to serve as the lead pastor of this community, and it's, it's so lovely to be able to welcome you and say hello in person. Hello as well to you joining with us online. We appreciate in these times. It's just um, brilliant to gather in whatever way we can. If you're at all new to our church, I hope at some point to meet you and maybe even beat you today at volleyball or something if we get the chance to do that in the picnic Um, You join us uh, right in the middle of a series on the book of Jeremiah. We've called it Jeremiah, a prophet for changing times, because that's what he was. He is a prophet from the crisis tradition of the the greatest crisis of the Old Testament, which was the downfall of Jerusalem, the city, the people of God overtaken by the Babylonians, and the kings were ended, and the temple was was destroyed. It was on the scale we've been thinking about it this past week of 9-11 and that, that mood of a nation, it was of a huge scale of that moment of compl- the unthinkable had happened. And so the first week it was called the, the End and New Beginnings. It was about Jeremiah's call to, to help speak into that about what they had to let go of in order to take hold of the new. And then we listen to Jeremiah's lamentations in How Lonely Lies the City, or How Lonely Sits the City, which was starting to name in worship things that we don't normally bring in, experiences that we maybe that don't fit the mold and we tend to leave them out. It was about naming our pain before God. And this week we come, and you've heard read the, the temple sermon. That's what we're calling this morning, the temple sermon. It's what many have referred to over the years, it's about worthless pursuits. And it's, it's really, in the moment of Jeremiah, it's a moment where it's like going into the eye of the storm. It's like deep into Jeremiah's case of why did this all happen? Why did God allow his people to be absolutely ravaged, ravaged by the Babylonians? And it's into that uncomfortable space that Jeremiah starts to, to speak with, with, with difficult words. Now, if, if I was a, a fundamentalist preacher, I would, it, this would be a preacher's delight in that sense. It, you, it's these, this book of Jeremiah is so full of doom and gloom. It's, there's only really three, four chapters of hope from 29 to 33. But we're, we're hanging in there with the, the, the heaviness of the passage because it's important so that we can actually truly face reality and, and see the hope. So we are in this space and... Um, so there, there's, there's some warnings with that um, about the tone. Um, there's a movement in this sermon, um, and you could perhaps imagine Jeremiah. It's not clear from context if he was, maybe there's a festival on or something, or he just was in the temple. Maybe he was reciting this sermon publicly a number of times throughout the day. We don't know. But you can imagine Jeremiah 
speaking against the dominant ideology of the day, speaking almost treason um, with the words that he was bringing against the authorities and people. So bold Jeremiah speaking at the temple, bringing this difficult message, this temple sermon. And the way I see it this morning is that the challenge before us is to let the call for reformation be heard, but not rush too quickly to apply it, or even if I could say it's too naively to apply it to your own life and context. I say that because the, the context is, is important, it, how, how different in some ways it is to ours. Things like Israel was a, a nation state. It was not just um, how we are as the church today. Also, we have been trained, I think, more so in the West, to, to hear what the word of God is saying to me. And sometimes I think we've lost or we, we struggle a bit more with what, when the word of God speaks to we or it speaks to a community rather than just a, an individual. But as well as that, it's important that we don't hear this and just attribute tragedies in our life to sin. We just need to read the book of Job, which just pushes that way of thinking to the side for a moment. If we're going to just fall into the trap of thinking, well, if everything has gone wrong in life, well, it must be about me, according to Jeremiah. So we need to be careful about when we hear these heavy words rushing forward to apply. But what I do know is that in this text, there, there, it's not a business as usual moment. It's not a business as usual moment for the people of God. And, and I think that's why I, I can relate it to this time that we are in. It's, we're trying to create a normal, but it's not business as usual. And so, as, uh, as I said before, Jeremiah was a prophet for change in times from the crisis tradition. So he starts in this sermon to peel back the layers of complacency. This complacency is the answer to why God allowed the Babylonians to do what the Babylonians did in their horrific destruction of the people, pushing and forcing them into exile, leaving mass starvation and the, the end of the temple. Um, we're peeling back the layers here, and, and this, is, this is Jeremiah's case as to why. And Jeremiah challenges their ways, first of all. And by that, I mean their ethical life, not their liturgical life. Liturgical life could be summarized, their, their prayers, their worship, their sacrifices, the things that they put on when they came to the temple. These are, you can maybe include their own private devotion, their prayers, their, their dedication to God in, in, an, in an outward sense. And Jeremiah is in many ways saying, okay, you know, marks out of 10 for your liturgy, 10 out of 10. People flock to the festivals, they come, they hear the songs and the liturgies. You could just imagine them giving a sort of slow clap, a sarcastic clap to say, well done. But he, he challenges not their liturgy, but the gap in their liturgy, because he's not against liturgy, he's not against the worship, but it's the gap in their liturgy between that and their public ethical life. And you've probably picked up from the, the readings as a whole, there's a lot in the readings about the horizontal relationships, the, the each other that becomes the, the really important thing in God's case against his people. Things like oppressing the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, verse six. The, the shedding of innocent blood. It even got to the point where there was, they picked up from another cult 
the, um, the habit of, or the practice of child sacrifice on a, on a horrific scale. And you just need to skim through the book of Jeremiah to hear the extent of their wickedness, the sacrifice I just referred to, and you just get the sense when you read it of a, a litany of insidious systemic sin among the people at every level. The leaders weren't seeking God, the the, the people worshiping were doing all sorts of things, and in their life, they were treating each other horrendously. Stealing, murdering, committing adultery, and perjury, verse nine. And so in some way, the question is, what does a watching world see when you leave this temple? Anything different? Is there any light in this house being shed? And in effect, Jeremiah said, no, nothing. And in effect, they were using somehow their, their worship, their, their temple liturgy to hide. It says, like Jesus quotes this, this, this den of, of robbers, this idea of robbers hiding and using this worship as a way to avoid, disguise the reality of their lives uh, in the public sphere and how they were treating each other. And Jeremiah just goes, I'm just going to challenge your ways right here. This, this gap between your liturgy and your ethics is, is, a, is appalling in, in my sight. Jeremiah exposes as well, not just their ways, he exposes their, their true loyalties. Verse 8, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, I will let you live in peace. It goes on verse 18, the, the children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. But am I the one they're provoking, declares the Lord? Or are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? And it says in verse 30, the people of Judah have done evil in my eyes. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. With Baal worship. And Jeremiah 2, which we didn't hear in verse 11, says, Jeremiah is basically saying, has a nation ever changed its gods, yet they're not gods at all, but my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Even the other nations with their, with their fake gods haven't deserted their fake gods, but you have deserted the one true and living God. And so for the people of God then, Yahweh was no longer a unique claim over their lives, but Yahweh was just one of many things or ideas that somehow just needed slotted into place alongside every other thing that was in their life, every other idol, every other thing they wanted to do. And in that sense, they were all implicated. It was a system, and it was now a culture of mixed loyalties. Leaders didn't even notice Kings didn't even care. They only wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. Yeah, Yahweh was important sometimes, but there was a lot of other as important loyalties. You might even say that at times there were other, other sources of salvation. You remember there's an example where they turn, when the last dish effort to kind of ward off the enemy, they turned to their old sort of foes or this relationship with Egypt, and they turn to Egypt to try and help save them. Egypt lets them down. They end up getting destroyed, turning to alternate sources of salvation when God was just saying, hey, come to me. I'm the living God. I'm the source of salvation. And so Jeremiah challenges their ways. He challenges their loyalties. 
But perhaps more than anything else, he, he challenges their assumptions, which is really when it gets down to this issue of obedience or disobedience in their case. He said, do not trust in deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He's mocking them. These were words of assurance. These are words that give them hope. The temple of the Lord will never, it was inviolable, it would never be destroyed. It can't be destroyed. They had the promises, the unconditional promises of God. And Jeremiah was mocking their deception and their false confidence. Because he was trying to show them that there, there was and there is an if-then sort of dynamic or rule that they were trying to ignore. Their worship was trying to ignore it. He says, if you reform your ways and your actions, then I will let you live in the land. If you, and I like this, really change your ways. You know, you know, just, I'm going to change. No, I'm not. I'm just wanting to pass the moment. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I give your ancestors forever and ever. And the summation of the case Jeremiah puts against his people is this repetition of them not hearing, which was a way of saying they're not obeying. They're not listening. Obedience in the Hebrew mind, or to hear was to obey. It meant the same thing. It was to hear the word of God and to respond to the word of God. And, and these people repeatedly, from Jeremiah's point of view, were tone deaf. They weren't listening. They weren't put into practice. Not the leaders, nobody seeking God. And he warned them. He says, your future is shallow. What? This wouldn't, this wouldn't square in their minds in any way. They couldn't compute this for a second as he said that. Shiloh was a place where God's presence used to be. And it was a shrine that got utterly destroyed because of their disobedience. And you could just imagine them computing Shiloh Temple. There's no way the temple will be Shiloh. No way. That is a place that's condemned. And Jeremiah's saying it's all sliding into the pit, into the waste ground, just like Shiloh, and you don't even realize it. But it's happening, and it's coming. God's judgment was on them. Verse 20. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field, on the crops of the land, and it will burn, and it will not be quenched. What about now? Even working back from that point of God's anger, that's uncomfortable. It's, it's not easy on the ears. On the one hand, you know, I, I, I think I said this before, I, 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 I want a God who gets angry about this stuff. I want a God who gets angry about lies, abuse, murder. You, you know, if, if God wasn't provoked like, like we are when we see something hideous, your you question is, is he worthy of worship? If, if, if at one level, that, that helps me to some degree with this theme of anger. But I think it's also important to sit with this question because on the one hand, 
I don't want a God who strikes violence with violence. How do I equate the violence of a God that we sometimes see him ordain or, or appoint or ally in, in the Old Testament with, in the New Testament, with a Jesus, the nonviolent one who would suffer all the way to the cross and, and would, would turn the other cheek and would call his disciples to say, Peter, put away your sword. How, how, do we, how do we add these two things up? Or how, how, what, how do we make sense of them? I think it's a fresh moment to try and sit with some of these questions because people lose their faith over this very question. People, our, our, the Christian faith and faith in general doesn't even seem credible to some people in this moment if we cannot at least address or speak into these issues of a God on the one hand who seems to be okay with violence and, and a Jesus on the other hand who, who is the non-violent pacifist. If you agree with that or not. So, I think it's good to sit with these questions. I think what we see, and, and, and another thing that helps me understand this and go some distance with this, though I still have my own questions, is that, that it seems to be that God allows the evil, the evil that the Babylonians do, rather than it's God who does it. God is not the one who takes a sword and kills them. He is the God who allows them. I don't think that answers everything, but I think you could make a case that often in the Bible you see a distinction between what God allows. And even at times when you think it was attributed to God by the people, the authors, in their, in their sense of what they understood to be true at the time, more often than not, the actual agent of it is, is somebody else, and God allows it. Now, you might say to yourself, is there a difference between God allowing it and God doing it? Greg Boyd, a really helpful modern writer on this topic, he, 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 I came across some of his, a couple of analogies he gave, which I thought were really helpful. He gave the analogy of, if you imagine somebody with a, a, like a horrendous dog, I'm not the biggest dog lover at the best of times, but you imagine just like a, you know, I don't know, pit bull, who was just like gnarly and was guaranteed to bite, and you had the owner just holding the lead, and they, they let it go, and there's kids in the room, and, and it bites, and you know, the, the owner knows what it's going to do, and he just allows it, and it happens. Well, in the court of law, you know, there's no way of stand up and say, well, he allowed it to happen. It's like, it doesn't matter. It's the exact same thing. No distinction. But he says, what about if it's not like that? And he said, what about, and some of you may experience this, either from your own addictions or, or living with somebody with addiction. What if it's more like those moments where, you know, you see somebody destroying their own life and you try, you try and try and try and warn and warn and do everything you can apart from change their will yourself because you won't force them. And there's points you just allow them to, to their own destruction, to their own hell that they've created. And you, because there's nothing else you can do. There's something here of the grieving God over giving them over to their own wickedness that I see in this passage, though I think it's still these questions. So what about attempting to peel back the layers of complacency today in our context? I think it's true, just sometimes, can't people be slow, God's people be slow to, to be the alternate community of light and justice? Maybe slow, as we lamented a bit last time, last week, about slow to pick up on things like climate change. Another inviolable, God's good creation, never going to be destroyed, never going to be destroyed. And we just, 
slow to pick up on things that are actually having a disastrous impact on people as, as, I, as we sit here. Slow to reach out to those in need. Just sometimes consumer church, consumer Christianity, come to church, get fed, rather than worship and go out into the world and, and, and serve your neighbor. Or consumer lifestyles, no different to the, the context of, of a, our world that we're in. We're, there's, there's, it's hard at times to see where's Christian distinction of what it means to follow Jesus. Sometimes we're led, I think, by culture on ethics. Sometimes for good, we get corrected by culture because they're like, you might want to care about this. But other times, for folly, just following the, the mood of the, this age. Sometimes we're more addicted to Bible studies than being faithful and present in our courses or ambassadors in our workplace. I've been wondering, wrestling myself, if there's something in this text that underscores the needs to push on with our Light of Renewal project, which we can tell you more about later, lest we lose the visibility of our public witness in this area and just be reduced to worship gatherings and, and, and public gatherings like that. When we want to be a light that speaks to the issues of our day. Might there be also similarities in, in, in misplaced loyalties at times, unholy alliances? And I, think, I feel this. It's like God, Jesus, church, and it's one of many things that need programmed into life. And sometimes there's just that sense of seasons where there's no one defining center other than perhaps the secular story of salvation where my happiness and my wholeness is the, is the leading storyline and key thing in my life. Which, when we go down that route of our own salvation, and we're the main character, and this whole thing is about us, it's, it's like they following the Egyptians. It proves to be a dead end. There's just something about giving up your life to find your life. But might there also be false assurances and assumptions that there'll be no consequences to disobedience. I still haven't got this right, I know it, but I was thinking, you know, what, is, what could sound like, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Be interesting to wrestle with that, which is a word of false assurance. It sounds right, it's true. At one level, it's so true. But at one level, it's, it's not. I, sometimes it feels like to me it could be, but by the grace of God, go I. The grace of God, go I. The grace of God, go I. Now, grace is the full and only currency in the kingdom of God. But I think I, I, sometimes I, I, I say that because I, let's make sure grace is really Grace. If you follow me, surely, if you think of the book of Revelation, if you've not read it, the first three chapters, if, that, if this is the word of God, there's still the same sense of the if and then principle in the New Testament for people, communities um, of Jesus, followers. If you do not repent, then I will come to you and remove your lampstand. And if James's epistle is to be believed, faith demands a certain response of obedience. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims their faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? I think he's saying no. 
Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, it's a horizontal relationship. If one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's the obedience of faith, not an obedience to seek and earn a merit before God or earn a relationship with God, no, but an obedience that flows out, evidence if you like, evidence of this relationship that you have with God is really important. The, the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's, who's quite a guy, I like him a lot, he warned the church through another time of crisis, it was through the Second World War uh, era, and he warned the church at large about um, the crisis of, of cheap grace. You've probably heard this before, but let me give you again. Bonhoeffer says many things, but this. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Don't hear me wrong, grace really is unconditional love, undeserved blessing to be brought into the presence of God and to receive the Spirit. But it is not a nebulous concept that allows us to ignore reality, the reality of our lives. It's something for us to take root in our lives to bring us into reality all the more, to bring us into the people God wants us to be. And so there is this repeated call to listen to obedience or else shallow. Just, I was listening to a pod, I actually listened to the whole series of a podcast in the one day, one golf round, six, six episodes, pods in, and it's, it's a Christianity Today one on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. I would encourage anybody to listen to it if you're just curious uh, about, I don't know, church, cultural Christianity, and, and lots of things, leadership, um, hypocrisy, I'm really selling it here. And it's, it's about the story of, and I don't say this with any delight, but it's about the story of a church, a significant church in America, Seattle, um, that that doesn't exist anymore, but used to be um, uh, an epicenter for what God was doing. It was a place where people flocked to, and the rise and fall, it's, a, it's, not, just, it's not a criticism of just a, a bland criticism of the church. They really try and weave the, the, the beauty of God working through broken people. But it, it reminds me of that example of, of, of the, of literally what Revelation was talking about, that if we're careful, if we, in this case, it was, seemed to be abusive power, abusive leadership, and a culture, a narcissistic culture, if we let that exist, shallow, it's not there anymore. It's nothing. So, uncomfortably maybe, but what response then should the temple sermon provoke in us. I say in us because I think this message in some ways is more for us than even the people of God, well certainly his, his immediate audience, because if you see, remember in the text, 
Jeremiah has this thing, this sort of private conversation with God. God's like, don't even pray for them. They're not going to listen. They're not going to turn. It's, it's not going to happen. So in some senses, it must have been bizarre knowing that. But he tells the sermon in some ways vindicating God because God shows clearly what was going on, but also because it would speak to a later remnant, a later people who would be faithful, a later people who would come in the line, who would take us through Jesus to his church, who would be faithful hearers of the word. So I think it speaks to us too, if you can follow that line through. And I think then it comes as the call for a reformation of our ways. It's not a business as usual moment. And listen to how it even ends. Just the last few verses, start of chapter eight. At that time declares the Lord, the bones of the kings and officials of Judah, the bones of the priests and the prophets and the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. This is not a great ending. I'll just give that warning. They will be exposed to the sun and moon and all the stars of the heaven which they have loved and served and which they have followed and consulted and worshipped. They will not be gathered up or buried, but will be like dung lying on the ground. Wherever I banish them, all the survivors of this evil nation will prefer death to life, declares the Lord Almighty. If we could just bring the kids back in and see what they've done. Yeah, it's quite an ending. It's quite an ending. It certainly shouldn't leave us feeling comfortable. And I say that, I mean, even if someone preaches this text and lands it with it, but we have Jesus and grace, grace, grace. I, I just think if you can follow with me, there is just something we distort about grace, about the understanding of the cost of, the, of God sending his son to die for us and offering a different way of the life-giving spirit of the upside down kingdom of God now present among us in part one day in full if we can just get a wee neat, comfortable ending. So how to respond? Well, I think I've already implied the answer. It's to return to being the faithful, humble presence of people who embody the kingdom. To be a culture where mourners actually find it easier to be around us, where outsiders find it easier to be around us, when the people who are forgotten in society find it easy to be around us. This is when we are living faithfully as the ones who actually say, I hear that call. And our liturgy and our worship and our lives reflect the one true living God. So it's about becoming an alternative community who are loyal and full of light. I think, I think that's the sort of response and call is, is, is we're meant to feel with a sense of weight, with a sense of challenge, with a sense of seriousness with hope, hope bursting through as we gathered here this morning, here and online, hear the call to reformation. No doubt this could leave many questions and maybe should leave many questions. However, may it motivate us in our mission to be a, a visible alternative, a community of light, not just a liturgical center where people like to sing and gather for worship, but an alternative community of light that has a liturgical life of integrity that imperfectly points to the one true and living God. May that motivate us in our mission. May it also assure us in our affliction that here we have a God who is for the displaced, the widow, 
the weak. His heart beats for the injustice of the city so much so that he is moved to action. May we be assured that God is with us in our affliction and comfort us this morning. But may it also challenge our complacency, sift our mixed loyalties. Nothing wrong with David Lloyd's and home workouts and all these things, but sifting our loyalties until by the grace of God, Jesus Christ is truly Lord of all. God, save us from worthless pursuits. The repeated call to hear, to listen, is ours today. And may God's spirit lead us in the grace of obedience. Let's pray together. you've not ever felt you've fully committed your life to Jesus, accepted his grace, but know of uh, this would be a great opportunity to do that. Father, thank you as we have sung already of your goodness, Lord, that you come afresh with real grace, real offers of relationship real offers of hope. And that through Jesus, we get this gracious invitation to a different way of life. That is good for us, even better for our neighbor and better for our world. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. We're listening. Amen.